you're listening to Senior Times Podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, Expressway, Travel Department and Doro Phones for making this podcast possible. Hello and welcome to our final podcast of Take Two. Mike Murphy here on behalf of Senior Times. My guest is John Banville. And today's programme, we'll be talking about George Packer's book, Our Man, Richard Holbrook and the End of the American Century, and Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance. We'll also have a look back at all the books we've enjoyed in this series of podcasts. But first, Our Man, Richard Holbrook and the End of the American Century. I was suggesting this book for you to read, John, but it turned out, and I wasn't aware of it at the time, it was one of your choices for the books of 2019. You obviously enjoyed it or admired it? Well, I thought it was superb and I thought that it was remarkable in that it was a new kind of history, new kind of new way of writing about contemporary history. Um, it's very personalized. Um, it's wonderful, you know, I don't know about you, but when I read biographies, I hate those first two or three chapters when we go back to his great-grandfather mm. who worked in the mines in County Cork and all that stuff. Oh, God, can we just... And I think it's chapter two, he says, do you mind if we just get over all the early stuff and move on? He actually said that. It yeah. was quite good, wasn't I, it? I, I, I was thrilled when I read that line. Uh, and he gets into the meat of this man's life. So, uh, and he's, it's completely personalised. Uh, he has no... He's not a Tom Wolfe. He's not uh, uh, cynical. He's not uh, an aesthete pretending to be a journalist. Uh, he is a real journalist. This is superb journalism, uh, superb contemporary history. And I find his subject absolutely fascinating. Tell us about uh, the book. Well... About Holbrook see, I, I, I grew up in the 1960s and into the 70s. The 60s, you know, dreadful period as it was, and it was one of the most bloodiest of decades in the 20th century, uh, there still was some sense of hope. And then came Nixon and his poisonous Republican Party. And they began to undermine and destroy the American ideal. They were bringing the American century, as it was called, to an end. Uh, crooks, burglars, you know, the dregs of political life took over America. Richard Holbrook believed he, he was, a, although he was somewhat ashamed of his being a Jew, uh, he was from that wonderful generation of people who come to America, uh, Jewish people who come to America, determined to make new lives for themselves and to help America to be great in the best sense, uh, to be great and good, to be a decent place to live, decent place to bring up children. So he was a pragmatic idealist, mm. or an, an idealistic pragmatist, if you prefer. He knew the realities of political life. He knew how difficult it was to get things done. He knew that you had to deal with monsters. And he went ahead and did it. And I have the greatest admiration for him. He joined the diplomatic service and... Um, he was extremely ambitious 
and wanted to work his way up to become eventually Secretary of State. In a previous chat, we were talking about somebody else and you were talking about a great a great man, somebody who didn't become a great man. He wanted to become a great man with a capital G and a capital M, didn't he? This was what Holbrook wanted. He was an arrogant man, but he he was a very successful ambassador and a very successful diplomat. Yeah, but he was on our side. Yeah. You know... He wasn't on the Nixonian side. Uh, he wasn't on the Kissinger side. He wasn't on for secretly bombing places. Now, he did things that were <laughs> very dodgy indeed, but that's what pragmatists do. They say, action is going... I'm going to be mired in action. I'm going to get my hands dirty, inevitably, if I take mm. action. But if I don't take action, nothing will be done. And he was the... For me, he was the ideal kind of... Uh, Rooseveltian American activist. He was. He was a He doer. came out of the New Deal. He came out yeah. of the, you know, to do things, to get things done, to make the country, as I say, great and decent. He was big, larger than life, loud, brash, charismatic. Um, he was probably unbearable. Probably unbearable. As a matter of fact, Joe Biden, back in, in the day, said he was, he called Holbrook a right pain in the you-know-what. Yes, yes. That's what he said about yes. him. And Obama hated him. Yes, Obama. Obama hated him. Apparently, when he went to the first meeting with Obama, uh, and Obama called him Dick, and he said, do you mind awfully calling me Richard? <laughs> that was the end of the end. And he said about Obama that he had ice in his veins. You know, and that's contrary to what you just said about him. He was a man of action. He was a doer, wasn't he? Oh, yes. I mean, he had, he had red blood flowing in him. Now, he was, you know, probably half the population would say, I don't care for him because he was certainly a man's man. And yeah. he treated women very badly indeed. Oh, he, he was very cavalier, to say the least. Cheated on all three of his wives. Apparently, he abandoned his children and then he couldn't recognize his own grandchildren. Yes. I mean, I mean, he, he wasn't, wasn't a nice man. He wasn't a nice man. But, but I mean, you know, but there I mean, are lots he, of nice men around. He did good things. I mean, I mean, you, you, you talked about Vietnam. He actually did save thousands of the boat people. He saved their lives by yeah. interfering and by bullying and annoying and so on. He did that. He did many good. He was the guy who literally was responsible for the Dayton Accord about the Bosnian War. Oh, yes, he knocked heads together uh, and they were... And they were tough heads. Thick heads and tough Milosevic heads. Milosevic and a few of these guys. And uh, he just, he, he had infinite patience. I mean, he was that that rare thing, a, a really active, red-blooded diplomat, that he just, he fought and fought and forced them uh, to do it. In the Bosnian, the Dayton Accord, in the book, there's a wonderful description of the restaurant where Milosevic who's representing the Serbians, and um, Siladovic, or is that, I'm sure I got his name wrong, the Bosnian guy, they're sitting at tables apart from each other, and he's hopping from one table to the other, saying, okay, if you guys got that, if we got that, and he eventually brought the two of them to sit at the same table, literally, in the restaurant. Yeah, it has to be confessed, he learned that, that, uh, that kind of moving uh, diplomacy from Kissinger. Kissinger was the master of that, Kissinger was the inventor of that, really. But uh, Holbrook was very good at it. And yes, he did. He just kept on and he forced them. And he saved a lot of lives. He saved a lot of lives, yeah. Um, he, you, you mentioned earlier on his pragmatism. And um, he, he did things like that he did regret. He supported the Iraq war. 
But the reason that he and admitted that the reason he supported the uh, Iraq war was because he felt if he didn't, he'd be seen as, quote, a soft Democrat, unquote. And he persuaded John Kerry to vote for it for the same reason. And he always regretted it. He thought it was a huge mistake. It was the, the Iraq war was the beginning of the end for America, though, that century, wasn't it? Oh, no, 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 no. Nixon, Vietnam, Nixon Vietnam. Vietnam. Kennedy's Vietnam. Vietnam was. Kennedy, our saint, you know, Vietnam was his war. And boy, would he have awaged it had he lived. Uh, Johnson was the best president since Roosevelt. Uh, and we forced him out. I remember being in a car in Napa Valley or somewhere in California in the afternoon that Johnson announced that he wasn't going to run again, and we cheered. And then we got Nixon. Yeah. And... Nixon was, I don't like to use the word evil, I don't believe there is such a thing, but Nixon was very, very wicked indeed. And um, he destroyed the body politic in America. You're right about um, Johnson was underrated and was kind of cruelly disposed of, really, but uh, Robert Caro wrote the most wonderful... Ser- I, I, I've read th- the three books that are out so far on the biography of Lyndon Johnson, and my, he came from nothing, that guy did, and boy, did he make changes. Now, he was not a popular man. He would have been a bit like Holbrook, overbearing. He was. You know, that kind of... And in the last six months of his presidency, he brought in Civil Rights Act... He brought in huge raft of That's right. wonderful legislation. Also, and got no thanks for it. And got no thanks for it. But and then Holbrook, although he people hated him, I thought it was quite amusing though. Where Cyrus Vance had to, who was an ineffectual man, um, and he was was he Secretary of State? I can't quite yeah, remember. Right. But he had to send a note to say, "Would you please stop jumping into my car all the time? <laughs> it's my car for these parades and so on." Holbrook was mooching. He'd, he'd, at one stage, he'd no money, so he was going from hotel to hotel, getting these diplomats to pay for him and all that. He was a real character. I mean, awful as he was, the air must have crackled yeah. around him. Yeah, um, you know, it must have been very, very exciting. Um, he was uh, he was so ashamed when he became the U- United States ambassador to the United Nations. He was so ashamed at the U.S. disgrace on Cambodia when he and the United States backed the Khmer Rouge, who were representing Cambodia, in getting a seat on the uh, on the UN assembly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was that must have been an awful thing for him. He knew what he was doing at the time, but it was. American pragmatism, if you wish to call it that. Yes, but a different kind of American, a different kind of pragmatism. God, we need people like Richard Holbrook now. Yeah. More than we ever did. The world, not just America. Um, Interesting. I mean, there was a shabby side to him, you know, which we have adverted to when he went to Bosnia and he was obsessed with Bosnia and he really did want to sort it out. But on a trip down the hill into Sarajevo, um, one of the lorries that he was involved in went off and a number of people were killed. And the Colonel Banksy was the hero of the hour and saved a whole lot of people and all that. But Holbrook claimed all the Colonel Banksy role for himself publicly. Yes, he behaved very shabbily then. I think that was the worst passage in his life, certainly in the worst passage of his life that we know about. Very shabby behaviour. I mean, I suppose you need people like that um, 
to 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 bring to go ahead and take a chance and do something. I and you do think Obama did not do these things. He would I think Holbrook would have scared Obama the sheer power of his personality. I think Obama's problem was he didn't really care to be president. He wanted to get the presidency, but he didn't actually he wasn't interested in it. It was too vulgar and it was too boring. It was too grubby. You don't Because Ob- Obama was that strange thing in politics. He was a gentleman. And there aren't, yes, quite. <laughs> um, we, we were talking about um, Yeats and the Nobel Prize and that. Um, our friend here, Holbrook, lobbied very hard to get the Nobel Prize. He kept, kept Oh, yes, he wanted the Peace Prize. He wanted it so hard and he made a fool of himself. As U.S. ambassador, as United Nations ambassador, he, among the good things, again, we're back to the good things, he authorized a life-saving peacekeeping force in East Timor, and he was the one who put the AIDS crisis on the agenda at the UN for the first time. He was a real mixture of the good, the bad, and the, well, I don't want to use the word evil either. But wasn't he? He he was an archetypical American of his time, of that post-war optimism, that post-war sense that America could do good in the world. Yeah. And that uh, ended with, began to end with Kennedy. He was a bad lot for all his charisma and humor and so on. He was a bad lot. Uh, and it was destroyed by, the destruction of it was begun by Nixon. And we now have poor America crippled and, and practically ruined. You know, no matter how rich it is, morally, America is bankrupt. We'll have to get to the bit about where in the title it says the end of the American century because I think that is incredibly relevant. But he went off as ambassador, then he was sent to Afghanistan as ambassador and he was to get get to and finish off Al-Qaeda. But he knew that Al-Qaeda were gone into Pakistan. They were, they were gone. There was no point. And he did not get on with Karzai, the president of uh, Afghanistan at the time. There was a real tension between the pair of them. But he knew himself, we're, we're barking up the wrong tree here in America, we're making a big mistake. Oh, he was very, I mean, he was very shrewd. Uh, when, as a young man, he arrived in Vietnam, and within a couple of weeks, he said, we can't win here. And that was very, very early in the war, when everybody was gung-ho and said, of course, we can win. American power cannot be defeated. And, you know, he knew. I mean, probably the worst thing that happened to America uh, in the 20th century was losing the Vietnam War. You know, America still hasn't accepted that they lost that war. Mm. Even their children who've never heard of the place know that there's something wrong somewhere. George Packer, uh, the writer, has a really good quote in it about the whole thing about the wars. Um, He says, a whole class of people in Washington and New York sent other people's children to fight in Afghanistan and Iraq while they found ways to get rich. Yes, that's true, but you could say that about any war. And Graham Greene had the quote about, um, it could have been about Holbrook. It was actually about the our man and uh, whatever. I never knew a man who had better motives for all the trouble he caused, which would have suited Holbrook, and he did. And at the end, uh, he almost exploded. He was, went to a meeting with Obama, who wouldn't meet him, told him, no, he wasn't going to meet him. Then he went to a meeting with Hillary Clinton, and at that meeting, he wanted to talk about Afghanistan, I think. He couldn't get a word in, and he, his face blew up in red, and he collapsed in a heap and was taken to hospital. He was destroyed by his own ambition and his own energy. Mm. Uh, he couldn't accept the notion that eventually he would be out of power. Uh, he was in love with power. 
yeah. for many good reasons, but power, as we know, destroys eventually. In the title of the book, um, Richard Holbrook, Our Man and the End of the American uh, Century, it, it really, he, it is the end of the, the American century, was the 20th century. It, it, you can see it there in that book. Well, you? it went sort of from the say, 80, 1870s, 1880s up to the 1980s, I think. That, that's the American century. That was when America wielded the most power in the world, mm. was the, you know, the supreme power. There's a little story about Khrushchev when he was coming for a summit meeting. They flew in the other way across the Atlantic. When they was crossing the coast of California, he looked down and he said, what are all those little blue rectangles behind the houses? And somebody said to him, uh, those are swimming pools. And Christoph said, we've lost. Is that right? Yeah. Mm. Um, it's a book to be read, isn't it? It is a wonderful book, a wonderfully readable book. Big book, but a big, meaty read. It's called Our Man, Richard Holbrook and the End of the American Century, and it's by George Packer. Our health service is here for you this winter, and we're taking every step to protect you from COVID-19. Our services are open and working, from routine appointments to urgent care. Remember to check your prescriptions and keep a list of your medicines handy. And look out for your Keeping Well This Winter booklet in the post. Visit hse.ie or call HSE Live on 1850 24 1850 for more information. From the HSE. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, a Doro 8050, designed specifically for seniors. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a Doro smartphone is go to the website seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. Say hello to our Premium Plus e-paper bundle. The interactive replica edition of the Irish Independent, Sunday Independent and The Hurl. Every paper, every day, delivered to your tablet, phone or desktop for less than €3.50 per week. Subscribe at independent.ie. Up close and independent. Welcome back. Our next item is not a book, but it's an essay. It's probably one of the best-known essays ever written. Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And in fact, John, as I know you wish to talk about it, but if I can lead you into it, there is some relevance to the book we have just discussed about American power, individuality, individualism, and so on, um, with the Richard Holbrook, isn't there? Yes, uh... Emerson is very much concerned with American power, with uh, American hegemony, with the coming American century. Um, there, are, there are two essays by Emerson that if you want to understand America, you have to read them. 
written approximately when? I mean, in... In the mid-19th century. Mid-19th century. Um, early, slightly earlier. One is called The American Scholar, uh, which is a, an address to university opening. And it's... I regard it as, I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes who described it as the intellectual declaration of independence. And it is. And in it he says, in the first page, our day of dependence, our long apprenticeship to the learning of other lands draws to a close. The millions that around us are rushing into life cannot always be fed on the sear remains of foreign harvests. It's a declaration of, we are America, we're American. Because Europe then, and still, to a large extent, regards America as a kind of failed imitation of Europe. But it's not. America is a new thing. America was a new phenomenon in the world. Uh, the founding of America was far more important than the French Revolution, in my opinion. And in self-reliance, he's stating, he's, he's, he's describing and to, even to an extent forming the American character. It is a tough essay. I don't mean tough to read. Uh, Emerson is always a joy to read. But it's, it, it, it is a very tough-minded and very tough-hearted. Uh, Emerson was no weeping liberal. Uh, he was lamentably anti-intellectual in many ways, even though he was an intellectual himself. I regard him as one of the late founding fathers of America. Mm. Uh, and self-reliance is the key text. He was tough and... He believed that native-born Americans of English descent were superior to European immigrants like the Irish, French and Germans. He said that. Oh, yes, of course. And, of course, he had very little to say about uh, black, blacks. He had very little to say about slavery. You know, there was nothing to say about Native Americans, mm. American Indians. He was a quintessential New Englander. He epitomised the toughness and the resilience and the self-reliance of New England settlers. Uh, hadn't much time, as you say, for the Irish or the Italians or, mm. uh, or the Catholics. Or, but the essay is prefaced by a little four-line poem of Emerson's, which chills the blood. There's a word in a bantling, which is a term for a small child. Cast the bantling on the rocks, suckle him with the she-wolf's teat, wintered with the hawk and fox, power and speed be hands and feet. Toughen him up. It's toughen him up. He says on page three of the essay, he says, whoso would be a man must be a nonconformist. He who would gather immortal palms must not be hindered by the name of goodness, but must explore if it be goodness. So trust nothing, trust no one, take nothing for granted, be your own man and question everything. Yeah, and he did too, didn't he? I mean, even in, in religion, he questioned everything. He was, he was destined, or did he become a minister? I can't quite remember whether he did or not. But he shocked people um, in, in Harvard. When he went to Harvard, and he went, he was very young, and at Harvard he said, Jesus was a great man, but he wasn't God. Mm. I mean, that was a shocking thing. He it wasn't was. invited back, by the way, for 30 years to Harvard. But you that. see, there was, there was a lot of free speech allowed in, in, in New England in that 
north, northeastern part of America at the time. There was a lot of thinking going on. Uh, a lot of philosophers were at work. Pragmatism was being invented. I regard Emerson as the first philosophical pragmatist. Um, and the message of this is apologize to no one. Don't say you're sorry. Even if you've done things that you should be sorry for, don't say it. Don't, move regret. Forward. He says there's he no doesn't point say regret. That. He doesn't say it. He just says, be a man, move on. No mention of women, of course. Mm. Uh, women were still the helpmeets, you know. Um, and he talks about not being consistent. He says, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. With consistency, a great soul should simply have nothing to do. Yeah. Don't be consistent. Don't be consistent. Contradict yourself and don't worry about it. Don't apologize. Move on. Uh, I regard Emerson as a great artist and a great philosopher. Self-reliance is, I think, the most unforgiving and the most unaccommodating of his essays. But Emerson was very, very tough and made no apologies for being tough. In another wonderful essay called Experience, he says, the only thing grief has taught me is to know how shallow it is. He goes on to say, grief too will make us idealists. In the death of my son, now more than two years ago, I seem to have lost a beautiful estate. No more. I cannot get it nearer to me. So his child is two years dead, and he's saying, it's as if I lost a bit of my property. I, I found some of it quite disturbing, um, well, some of the things he says. He says, to be great is to be misunderstood. And I think of the people in history who wanted to be great. And I'm thinking of people who, you know, he'd be quoting Pythagoras, maybe and Newton and maybe Jesus. But I'd be thinking, oh, what about the Hitlers and the Stalins and the people like that? They wanted to be great. They're a little misunderstood, are they? There's an element in a lot of what he says of encouraging people to simply do what they bloody well want and and the hell with the consequences, isn't there? You know, and you think of a, a recent president of the United States of America um, choosing to maybe lie. I don't think Emerson would have found great fault with such a preoccupation. He would have despised Trump. Um, he would have had nothing to do with him. He was out for strong men, uh, not for liars and cheats and cowards. I mean, I did find some of the stuff was interesting. He says we, he says we people capitulate to badges, names, dead institutions. I mean, he was actually against even the words of the gospel being used. He kind of said, think for yourself. Don't be, don't be going by these old sages. Most of the stuff is made up anyway or reconstituted. You see, the problem with that is that lots of those people up in those Western states with their arsenals of automatic weapons, they would be great Emersonians. They'd say, yes, I'm not taking anybody's word for it. I'm not going to wear a mask because of this virus that's going about. I'm going my own way. So... Would they, a, would they be doing that because, well, not many of them would have read Emerson, not many but, them, but, but it would be an attitude. Yes. That Emerson would, would he have applauded? Now, there's a question. You see, you when have? you have someone like Emerson or his friend, uh, uh, Toro, they don't address the question of what do you do when 
bad leaders take power. And you know, as Isaiah Berlin and others have pointed out, the nightmare that's, that haunts modern democracy is that Hitler was voted into power by a majority. And democracy only works when halfway decent people want power, when people who have no sense of decency whatever go for power and get power, then democracy is in trouble. Yeah. Uh, Emerson doesn't have anything to say about that. No. Tell me about Emerson himself. He was uh, a New England gentleman. He went for the church. Uh, he was making his living from the church. And then, like Herman Melvin's Bartleby, one day he just said, it doesn't suit me. I'm not going to do it anymore. And he wrote to the church and said, I'm leaving. So he made a living from his lectures and talks. Uh, in those days, you know, Dickens did it, Oscar Wilde, and you could go about the country giving these talks to people, huge halls of people, and you made a lot of money out of it. So that's how he made his living. Um, he had pushed Europe away as an American, but of course he admired Europe. Um, he knew what America had lost by breaking the link with Europe. He didn't think it was the wrong thing to do, but he knew that that great European culture was lost. And I'm sure that privately he mourned it, but he wasn't going to mourn it in public. We are a new nation, he was saying. We are a new thing in the world. And he was unapologetic about that and was proud of that. But, as I say, he had nothing to say about the plight of women, nothing to say about the plight of the blacks, nothing to say about the plight of the Indians. Mm. Uh, he was not a liberal in that sense. Mm. So, But you have to... You have to take him as he is. He also, and you, you mentioned it earlier on about travelling, uh, he, he was saying, don't, do not travel to, to Europe or Egypt or wherever else that the people were travelling on the Grand Tour. Don't go if it's for amusement's sake. Go if it's, to, if it's to better your mind, so to speak. And wasn't it in Paris that he, um, he built up the association between man's life and nature? Nature was a hugely important part of his life, wasn't it? Yes, you see, that's, that's something that we forget nowadays because we have largely conquered nature. But in those days, nature was still the great potential. Mm. Uh, it was, of course, there'd been the Industrial Revolution, of course there was a great deal of industry around, but nature was still a great force and a great inspiration. We hadn't lost interest in it the way we have now. Who were the people that he influenced? I, I, I presume Thoreau was one of them with the, with the interest in, in well, the Thoreau world. Was, was, was his own man. He wouldn't have <laughs> admitted being influenced by anybody. Uh, Thoreau was a really quite an objectionable person. Was he? Personally, yes. But, uh, but a great thinker uh, and a great activist. Uh, you know, you could trace back the, the Green Movement to Thoreau. His, his wife died when she was very young, didn't he? Oh, that's extraordinary. His first wife. He married her when she was... He knew her when she was younger, but he married her when she was 18. She died when she was 20. Uh, he was grief-stricken. And about a year and a half... He died in 1829. In 1832, he went to her grave and opened the coffin. Did he? Opened the coffin? Opened the coffin. What a strange thing they to had, do. They had much 
different attitudes to death in those days than we have. They lived with death. They weren't afraid of corpses. They weren't afraid of putrefaction. They knew what happened to us. They didn't lie to themselves the way we do nowadays. Hospitals give us the great opportunity to lie to ourselves that we live forever. Do you admire what he wrote? Uh, and, and obviously you do when you wanted to... Oh, I think, he's, I, think he's, he, I think he's very great. He's one of the great American figures of the 19th century. But I have deep reservations about his thinking yeah. Yeah. and the effects of his thinking. And I, th I suspect that if he had any inkling, if he had had any inkling of what was coming, say in the mid-20th century... He would have written differently. He would have rewritten, rethought. That's true of all of us. Yeah, he would have rethought it. Um, Walt Whitman, I gather, sent him a copy of Leaves of Grass, and he replied in flattering terms. However, when Whitman featured Emerson's words on the cover of the second edition, Emerson took grave offence. <laughs> writers, you know, writers. <laughs> writers, you writers, you're all the darn same. <laughs> all right, thank you very much indeed. That was Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Say hello to Independent Weekend Home Delivery. Save up to 40% with the Irish Independent and Sunday Independent delivered to your door every weekend. Plus, enjoy premium access to independent.ie and read our interactive e-paper edition all week long. All from just €5 Euro per week. Search for Independent Home Delivery now. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, a Doro 8050, designed specifically for seniors. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a Doro smartphone is go to the website seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. Our health service is here for you this winter and we're taking every step to protect you from COVID-19. Our services are open and working from routine appointments to urgent care. Remember to check your prescriptions and keep a list of your medicines handy. And look out for your Keeping Well This Winter booklet in the post. Visit hse.ie or call HSE Live on 1850-24-1850 for more information. From the HSE. Welcome back. Well, finally, I thought we'd do a recap of the books and essays that we read and discussed. So, John, the fact is we went through 17 different items. Some of them were essays, some of them were poetry, and some of them were books. So let's have a little run back over them. I have to say I enjoyed doing the whole thing. It was interesting to be introduced to books that I would never have even thought to read. And I think you enjoyed one or two of mine. I'm not for a moment I saying, enjoyed all of them. No, did you? Good, I did. good. Well, now, no, I'm looking at the list, and it's a wonderful list, and it'd be, it would be splendid to think that uh, some people, especially younger people, would take this as a list and read every book on it. 
Okay, let's go through them. We'll take them in the order in which we we did them, in fact, over the course of the six podcasts. The Last September by Elizabeth Bowen. It was your suggestion for me, and I really did enjoy it. I hadn't read it before, and it was about the fall of the Anglo-Irish ascendancy, and she she wrote about it very, very sensitively and very interestingly. I liked it. I liked it very much, and I know you're, you're a fan of hers anyway, aren't you? Yeah, and I think this is a great book. I think this is her best book, and I think, as I said in the podcast, if she had been a man, she would have a far higher reputation than she has at the moment. She's one of the best novelists of the 20th century, and this, I think, is her masterpiece. She wrote when she was very young, and it was her own favourite. Splendid book. Mm. Um, and then, then we took a short story, or would you say a novella, by Franz Kafka. No, it's a long short story. A long short story called Josephine the Singer. Now, I would never have thought of reading that. I had read The Metamorphosis, of course, and maybe one or two other things of Kafka, but he was always kind of intellectually too much for me. But this was a, a beautiful little story. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that he's intellectually difficult. It's just that what one finds difficult in reading Kafka is that it's, his narratives are so straightforwardly narrated, but the content of them is so bizarre and so strange that we have a kind of a disconnect in our minds. But they're very simple to read. And Josephine the Singer is a very, very simple little story about the mouse people, and Josephine sings for them, and she keeps their spirits up, and she expresses the, the, the spirit of the mouse people. She sings whether they like it or not. Whether they like it or not. <laughs> Despite popular yes. demand. Yes. <laughs> She's an artist, of course. She's, it's Kafka's, I remember at the Kafka's time, portrait of the artist. I remember at the time we were talking about it, and I said, Do you, he reminds me, he's like a, a cubist painter. You know, if you take Cubist painting and he goes off on these tangents. In the stories that he wrote, I found some of them just very unusual and difficult to understand. And, of course, he himself wanted his work burned when he died, didn't he? Well, there's a question about that. He told his friend Max Brod to, to destroy his work, but it was a bit ambiguous. Mm. Thank as he didn't. The third, um, the third item in that podcast was Ben McIntyre's A Spy Among Friends. And that that was about Kim Philby. And of course, uh, I, I figured one way or another you we would have an interest in it having written your book, The Untouchable, about Anthony Blunt. But it's a darn good book, isn't it, Ben McIntyre? It is an excellent book. It's, it's very well researched, very, very well written. McIntyre knows his stuff. Um, and of course, it's a splendid story. I mean, the Cambridge Spy is one of the most fascinating group of people since Guy Fawkes and his gang. Um, and they did great damage to the fabric of English political life, even English social life. Uh, the damage is not, was not apparent. But uh, one writer writing about, whom I read recently, writing about Don McLean, one of the Cambridge spies, says that the Cambridge spies, their activities led directly to the Brexit vote. To the Brexit vote? Mm-hmm. Well, my goodness. And he argues it very persuasively. I, I can't see it, but... He argues it very persuasively. Well, they were they were responsible for the deaths of a lot of people at the time, too. I mean, they were responsible. I mean, in the thousands, they say, Philby was responsible for the de- deaths of people. Yes, but he believed in the cause. He did. And war is war. But it was a moral tale at the end. Mm-hmm. He wasn't... He was a bit disillusioned with life in the, in the Soviet oh, yes, Union but, when he went. yes, but, you know, having a happy ending depends on where you stop. 
Okay, let's go on. Uh, then you suggested that I read a tome. I got my own back on you later on, <laughs> but um, uh, you got, suggested I read William James by Robert D. Richardson, and that's a huge book. And to be, I, I had to admit to you, I knew nothing about William James. He was Henry James's older brother, and he was one of the great philosophers of both his time, and I suppose even to today, he's recognised as one of the great philosophers. Uh, I did find it fascinating. It opened up a whole new world to me that I was unaware of. Well, he was that rarest of things. He was a plain language philosopher. Anybody can read him. You don't have yeah. to, you know, it's not technical. But I thought Richardson did a sense. super job in the writing. Oh, Richardson he? was one of the great biographers. He was a friend of mine. He died recently. Uh, a wonderful man and a wonderful writer. Uh, his biography, Richardson's biography of Emerson, is, I think, his masterpiece. It's called Emerson, The Mind on Fire wonderful book mm. but this uh, William James book is, is also a masterpiece I think we also had uh, The Ballad of the Sad Café by Carson McCullers which was a, just a, a, an engaging story and a sad story in, uh, in a collection of Carson McCullers yeah it's a heartbreaking story about life in the deep south of America um, a woman running a store uh, a dwarf arrives uh, takes over her life. Her estranged husband comes back and the dwarf falls for him and it all goes dreadfully wrong. Mm. But it's beautifully told. It's told like a, a ballad. It's very simple, very straightforward. Um, and just a, a, a wonderful, as I say, heartbreaking, but very beautiful. Then I suggested to you to read Robert Hughes's um, The Spectacle of Skill. Um, I am a huge fan of Robert Hughes, his The Shock of the New and uh, his The Fatal Shore, his History of Australia and so on. And I, I also did know that you, are, you, are, you like Robert Hughes's work as well, and I think you know him personally, but um, I was pleased that you did seem to enjoy it. Yes, uh, Hughes is one of the great cultural figures of the latter half of the 20th century. Great art critic, uh, great cultural critic, great sociological observer, uh, a great Australian, mm -hmm. very fond of Australia and Australians. Um, of course, they all have to come up here, unfortunately, the, you know, leaving Australia the poorer for their loss. But uh, a great elitist. I was, about, I was about to say that. We discussed that. Elitist. Unapologetic elitist. What has he said? You know, if you go to a, a tennis match, you know, you're for the guy that wins. You know, um, and he. I want to see tennis played well. Yeah, that's of kind of it, isn't it? That's. Um, I mean, we're all elitists. Yeah, nobody wants the second. <laughs> we don't often. We don't often say it, though. Well, we should say it more often. <laughs> nobody wants the second rate. Okay. We'll tolerate it, and we'll you know we'll sympathise with it, and so on. But nobody wants it. But isn't this a good collection of his work? This though? is superb. It's it's a really wonderfully chosen collection. Yeah. It has some marvellous, marvellous essays in it. I think it's one of these books that you have by the side of the bed and every so often you take it out and read one of his articles. Yeah, from and Time the beauty magazine. of it is because it's a selection, you can dip into you it. You can dip anywhere. into it, yeah. It's, it's a wonderful book. Okay, Spectacle of Skill by Robert Hughes. Then we come to Elizabeth Strout, uh, recently, well, fairly recently published, Olive Kitteridge. And um, I, I suggested that to you, and I was a little, I had to say, I said, I don't think Mr. Banville is going to really enjoy this. And I don't think you thought you were yourself, and you actually turned out to be 
quite approving in certain ways. Yeah, no, I didn't think I would like it. I thought it was sort of that safe Middleborough American fiction. And to a certain extent it is, but it's very, very good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Middleborough fiction. Most people read Middleborough fiction and get a great deal from it. Um, a lot of high fiction, art fiction is rubbish. Um, so I, I love this book. I, Olive Kidridge is a wonderful character. She is, isn't she? Uh, she's, she's not very likable. She's not beautiful. Uh, she's a tough American. She, you know, Emerson would have liked her. William James would have liked her. Uh, she's a very representative American figure, but also very much an individual. It's a wonderful yeah. portrait. Just a good book. Good. The Turn of the Screw by Henry James was something that you wished to discuss. Well, it's the greatest ghost story ever written, but it's a question as to whether it is a ghost story or not. I really shouldn't say any more because people who haven't read it um, shouldn't be alerted to possible ambiguities in it. Henry James himself described it as a trap for the unwary, but it is a marvellous story. And as in all of Henry James, it's a marvellous investigation of evil at its most, in its most acceptable, seemingly acceptable form. Um, the, the book, in, in, I think we, it was in the same program, we included Richard Ford's Independence Day. And uh, I just love the character of Frank Bascom. I, I love the asides, the humorous asides and observations on humanity, on his local, the local shops, the local people, the selling of a house down the road, the communities, the black communities and so on. He, and his whole screwed up relationships with his wife, mistress, children. It's, he's just so entertaining. Yes, and I think that Richard Ford is the Proust of modern America. I think he manages both to chronicle daily American life and also to make transcendent works of art out of that. That's quite a skill. Yeah. It's a hell of a book, isn't it? It's a wonderful book. It's wonderful. It's wonderfully entertaining, yeah. wonderfully funny, uh, and moving. Yeah. And it is a wonderful, I won't say a snapshot, it's a wonderful in-depth photograph of American life in the, in the 1980s. And I understand that he's writing currently the last book in the Frank Bascom series, and poor old Frank's going to die, I'm very sorry to hear. Well, so I've heard that, I've... I also heard other versions, but we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. For me, the revelation of the entire of our entire podcast was uh, Hubert Butler, the sub-prefect should have held his tongue, which is a collection of essays by Hubert Butler, who under-read by, by people in Ireland and elsewhere. You've made the point during the course of our discussions that you regard him as one of the great writers of the 20th century. He lived down in Kilkenny, a member of the Anglo-Irish aristocracy, but more on the impoverished side of that than anything else. But my goodness, what a European man and a man of letters he was. Oh, I think he's... I think he's great world figure. I, I can't understand how he's not better known. Um, but I suppose it's that he, he was shy and retiring. Uh, he didn't much care about making a splash in the world. Uh, he wanted to. He, he prized the local yeah. above the cosmopolitan. The parish. The, international. the parish was important to him. But his European essays, he travelled in 
Europe extensively, especially in the Balkans before the Second World War. And his essays about that time and that place are transcendently good and prophetic. Yeah, he should be read by everyone. Anybody who can get their hands on a Hubert Butler selection of essays, really. And also, you know, it's such a pleasure to read his prose. It's clean, straightforward, unfussy, beautifully wrought prose. Not much of that around these days. We're moving to poems now. Elizabeth Bishop, uh, great uh, favourite of yours. Oh, Elizabeth Bishop is just such a delightful poet. I hate using the word delightful about a poet because it makes it seem as if, you know, it's it has the word light in it. But it's not light poetry by any means. I think Elizabeth Bishop is a major poet. Um, she was a great friend of the great muscular egomaniac Robert Lowell, who, although Elizabeth wasn't inclined that way, uh, even proposed marriage to her at one stage. Um, an unlikely friendship, but uh, it shows that Lowell, who knew his stuff, who knew his poetry, he knew, the, he knew her greatness. And also, again, the sheer pleasure of this poetry is endless, boundless. Um, and there was a book that, um, again, uh, when I asked you, would you like to read it, I thought he won't like this one. And it was Albert Facey, Australian classic, called A Fortunate Life. And, about, and it was about his, his life, Albert Facey's, out in Western Australia, when it was effectively the Wild West of Australia. And his, the tribulations of his childhood and his growing up and going to Gallipoli, he was in a, a, a boxer, a professional boxer for a while. And what a to, to call it a fortunate life was a bit of a misnomer, really. Yes, I approached this book with trepidation. <laughs> I knew you would. A certain amount of dread. <laughs> but I was completely won over by it. It's very simple. Uh, he had no education, taught himself to read and write, uh, had a hideous childhood, truly hideous. Uh, came through it all with his faith in human beings, unbroken. Uh, I was glad to discover at the end that he's an atheist. I thought he was, you know, I, I dreaded the moment when he said, you know, I owe all this to God, but no, he didn't. Having seen the world in its rawness, as he saw it, he just, he couldn't believe in a God, but he believes in human beings. Mm. And uh, it's a wonderfully affirming book. Uh, not affirming in that awful sentimental way it's just it's a straightforward story and uh, beautifully told simply told beautifully told a fortunate life that is by albert facey um coke yeah this is the other side of human nature now from albert facey to coke land this is about the brothers coke k-o-c-h uh, by christopher leonard and these are the people who are responsible for most of the pollution in the united states of america who are greedy who have corrupted and who have destroyed the unions they're formed the tea party this is a family from wichita in kansas Yes, they are crooks. Um, not all of them are as bad as the, the head of the family, Charles Coke, uh, who has, uh, you know, made his fortune by stealing oil from Indian reservations. Um, almost admitted that he did it, didn't care, you know. It's just the Indians mm. stealing it from. Dreadful, dreadful people. And uh, as you say, responsible for so much pollution and probably, although he doesn't much like Trump, Charles Koch was probably 
or the progenitors of Trump and Trumpism. Mm. Uh, that's Cokeland, and uh, we moved on then to Yeats's The Tower, which you probably would regard as his most important poetic work. Well, I think certainly that this slim volume is, uh, I think, superb. I think it's one of the greatest single volumes of poetry ever published. Um, there are a handful of absolute masterpieces. There's not a, there's not a weak poem in, in the collection. Uh, it's Yeats's late work at his strongest, his harshest, uh, and his most sublime. Hmm. Iris Murdoch was next with A Severed Head, interesting woman, philosopher and and novelist. Uh, it didn't appeal to me greatly, but um, you uh, you admire her. I admire her, as I said in the podcast. It's it's not a great book, but I think it's a very, very fine book indeed. It's beautifully wrought, beautifully made. It was only her third novel, um, and she's already uh, a master um, at what she does. But... You know, many people be like you, they will leave them cold. The English found it screamingly funny. I don't know how that is. I mean, it's, I it's witty and amusing and... Oh, yes. Blackly it's comic. All those things. But it's not a laugh. It's not a belly no. laugh. The other books that we, we dealt with, we dealt with in this particular program, um, Our Man Holbrook, Richard Holbrook, and uh, Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson. John, I'd like to thank you very much. I have to say how much I've enjoyed doing this with you. We've, we've, I think we've, the reading that we got has been very rewarding, certainly for me, very rewarding indeed. And I used to say to you, I've got to go and do my ecker because it was going home to read something that I'd never read before and saying, will I be able to get through it? But it was a terrific experience. I do hope, you're quite right, I'd love people to read some of the books that we've just outlined there. They're, they're just so good. Yeah, I hope at least some people will put away their bloody cell phones and stop watching, stop binging on television series and read a book. It still is the most rewarding thing you can do in your spare time. There are more pleasurable things you can do in your spare time. This is <laughs> yeah, one of the this most is a good one. <laughs> in fact, maybe there aren't more pleasurable things. The pleasure of reading is is one of the great pleasures. It can life. only be surpassed, I'm sure, by the writing of the books. Oh, yes, that's a great pleasure. <laughs> yes. That's great fun. Yeah, the agony. <laughs> right, yeah. In case anybody's, yes, in case anybody's uh, encouraged to start writing by our talking about books, I would discourage them. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> Will, Will Self, the English writer, put it beautifully, said it's true that every man or woman has a book inside him or her. It's just he or she shouldn't write it. <laughs> <laughs> John Banville, thank you very much indeed. And I would like to thank our production team, Anne Walsh and Mark Murphy. And on behalf of Senior Times, this is Mike Murphy saying goodbye. Mm-hmm.